The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, January 28th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The mathematics of knitting, how France is trying to legally protect smells, a cautionary tale that will inspire you to go check on your office building if you've been working from home and no one's done that for a few months, and a horrifying new product from Kraft Mac and Cheese. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Have you ever thought about the geometry of knitting? Not the geometry of final knitted products, but of the yarn and stitches themselves. Now, if you're not a knitter, you may not know that there are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of different types of stitches that can be used when knitting to create a different look or effect. Picking the right one or combining a few can help a product lay flat or form into the correct shape or just look cool or present a challenge for the knitter. Physicist Elisabetta Matsumoto is a lifelong knitter who has been studying the math behind knitting ever since starting to wonder about it while in grad school at the University of Pennsylvania. Now she hopes to build a catalog of the mathematical rules that explain the resulting fabric properties from combining various stitches. Quoting Science News, By varying stitch combinations, a knitter can alter the elasticity, mechanical strength, and 3D structure of the resulting fabric. Yarn on its own isn't very elastic, but when knitted, the yarn gives rise to fabric that can stretch by more than twice its length while the yarn itself barely stretches. Matsumoto's research builds on knot theory, a set of mathematical principles that define how knots form. These principles have helped explain how DNA folds and unfolds and how a molecule's makeup and distribution in space impart it with physical and chemical characteristics. Matsumoto is using knot theory to understand how each stitch entangles with its neighbors. The types of stitches, the differences in their geometries, as well as the order in which you put those stitches together into a textile may determine the fabric's properties, she says. Making tiny changes, such as altering a couple of crossings in a knot, could have a huge impact on the mechanics of the textile. For instance, a fabric made of just one stitch type, such as a knit or purl, tends to curl at the edges, but combine the two stitch types together in alternating rows or columns, and the fabric lays flat. And despite looking nearly identical, the fabrics have varying degrees of stretchiness, Matsumoto and grad student Shashank Markandi reported in July in the Bridges 2020 conference proceedings. End quote. Now, in addition to working on a dictionary of stitches and their corresponding mathematical properties, Matsumoto is also working with her team to train a computer that can predict the mechanical properties of fabrics based on the yarn properties, mathematical stitch details, and final knitted structures. And while that will obviously be a cool tool for knitters and could be applied to all sorts of textile creations, including smart wearables, it could have even larger applications with materials other than textiles, like, for example, scaffolds for growing human tissue. 
Yeah, I feel like knitting is often underappreciated for how impactful and complex it is, and how crucial it's been to our society for centuries. So if knitting could somehow be the gateway to executing the manipulation of physical properties in a brand new way, I would be incredibly here for it. Plenty of buildings and artifacts get legal protection for their relevance as part of a community or culture's heritage, but France may soon be protecting certain sounds and smells under a new sensory heritage law. This has sort of arisen from a tension happening between folks who have lived in rural towns for generations, or at least most of their lives, and city dwellers who are moving to rural areas or vacationing there. Neo-rurals, or more colloquially, cityites. Us city folk who visit or move to a rural area and accidentally or intentionally break all the rules and can barely function. There's been a rising number of cases of vacationers filing complaints about the ordinary sounds of the rural village they're staying in. For example, quoting Atlas Obscura, The vacationers who wanted to exterminate the buzzing cicadas on their property in Provence. The woman sued by newly arrived neighbors for raising ducks, which she'd been doing for 36 years before the neighbors moved in, and a seven-year legal battle over noisy frogs in a backyard pond. End quote. One of these cases made international headlines in 2019 when tourists on Isle d'Oléron off the coast of France filed a noise complaint regarding Oléron local Corinne Fasso's rooster, Maurice. The town sided with the rooster's right to crow, and when the case got escalated to the courts, a judge eventually sided with the rooster as well. Fasso echoed the sentiment of a lot of people from more rural areas of France, saying, quote, When you're in the countryside, you accept the noises of the countryside. And when you're in the city, you accept the noises of the city. If you don't like the noise where you are, don't stay there. End quote. And I kind of love this, you know, even though, of course, it's not practical advice for everyone, at least in terms of living. But as far as vacationing goes, totally. That case and many others like it spurred Pierre Morel Alusier, a representative from the small village of Luzerre, to present a new law to the French National Assembly, the law protecting the sensory heritage of the French countryside. With its new concept of sensory heritage, the law would ensure, quoting Atlas Obscura, the sounds and smells that animals like Maurice make will explicitly be protected under the law and recognized as an integral element of a place, end quote. And Directorate General for Heritage at the French Ministry of Culture, Isabel Chav, says the word heritage was chosen for specific reasons. She said, quote, When we call something a heritage, it implies that there's a desire to protect that thing, she says. We use the term heritage when there's a sense of urgency, a feeling that something is being lost, end quote. Part of the point of the law is to give local mayors a legal leg to stand on when they face noise complaints that get escalated, but it's also to imbue a sense of respect for these places. If they're protected as heritage sites, hopefully people will appreciate their sounds and smells instead of complaining about them to town officials or trying to get them to change. The law was approved unanimously by the National Assembly this month, but still needs to be approved by the Senate. And if it is, it will be interesting to see how this concept of sensory heritage might play out in other places and in other ways. Could it maybe be used as a sort of workaround for certain climate regulations to prevent more aggressive types of counter-urbanization? I don't know, but it will be interesting to watch.
Anyone who has been working from home throughout the pandemic but has had the occasion to make a trip back to the office has likely made some interesting, though largely banal, discoveries. Lots of dead plants, maybe your favorite mug, unwashed, your water bottle still filled with water from March, some mail or paperwork you forgot about. Nothing too wild, but still an overall eerie sense of spontaneous abandonment. Well, for employees at marketing analytics company Invoca's Santa Barbara office, the scene was a bit more harrowing. They've been working from home since the start of the pandemic and don't have plans to return until at least later this spring. But like most offices in the same boat, a few employees have had reason here and there to make solo missions back to the building. Specifically, Susan Arango, an Invoca workplace experience manager, went back a few times to check on the building following storms. The first time she went in late April, she noticed some dead bees in the hallway. Thinking they could have blown in from the storm, she shrugged it off. But the next time she returned, there were more dead bees on the ground. Still, she didn't see any signs of live ones, and since no one was working out of the office at the time, she didn't worry. But as she kept making regular trips, she kept seeing more and more dead bees in the building. She started searching the office for a nest but could never find one, and eventually decided she needed to call in reinforcements. She hired Super Bee Rescue and Removal, a local company who specializes in humane removal of honeybees. Quoting Inc., Super Bee sent a technician who spotted bees flying into the building from outside. Using thermal imaging, the technician tracked down the nest within five minutes, Arango says. It held 10 gallons of beeswax, honey, and pollen. The insects had found their way in through a hole in the building's exterior brick wall and took up residence in a crawl space below between the second and third floors. The technician estimated they had been there at least six months. There was also an older honeycomb indicating that a smaller number of bees had previously lived in the space for several years. Invoca had been renting the building for about two years. The bees were apparently dying because after being attracted to the entrance lights, they became trapped in the hallway, Arango says, end quote. All told, there were 20,000 bees in the office building. Invoca CEO Greg Johnson said, quote, We've talked a lot about the challenges of coming back to the office. We have not thought about this one. I would have never in a million years in my wildest dreams imagined this would be a facilities problem we would run into, end quote. So, yeah, if your company has been working from home, it might be worth making sure someone is going in to check for bees, or any other kinds of pest infestations for that matter. As offices reopen, I think pest removal and extermination companies are going to be getting a lot of work. And as a bonus, I'm dropping a link in the show notes to that time in the summer of 2018 when thousands of bees swarmed Times Square in New York City and had to be removed by the NYPD's official beekeeper. Because apparently, that is a real position on the force. The NYPD beekeepers even have a verified Twitter account. The story sounds kind of Hitchcockian, but it's actually almost heartwarming just watching the beekeeper do his thing. Link in the show notes. Valentine's Day is coming up, and Kraft is hoping you'll treat your sweetheart to a delicious bowl of pink mac and cheese. Or as they've branded it, Candy mac and cheese. But it doesn't look like candy in the marketing. It looks like a bowl of cheesy pasta that someone photoshopped bright pink. A Kraft Heinz spokesperson said that the pink color comes from beetroot and carrot concentrates, which, all right, that doesn't actually sound too bad. Those are the kinds of natural additives that you don't usually taste at all. 
But then, quoting NBC Chicago, As for what makes it taste like candy, the extra packet of powder contains fructose, natural flavors, and vanilla extract, they said. End quote. Yeah, I think I'm out at that point. I just don't think I want my pasta tasting like vanilla, especially cheese and vanilla. Something about that is not connecting in my brain. I don't like it. And apparently the beetroot and carrot concentrates are also part of the powder packet, not in the pasta. This candy mac and cheese doesn't actually exist as its own product. You get a normal box of Kraft mac and cheese and then just add the powder packet to turn it pink and sweet tasting. And it's not for sale. To get your hands on a box, you'll have to enter to win at CandyCraftMacAndCheese.com before February 8th. A thousand people will win a box of normal mac and cheese and one of these horrifying packets of powder. Torrance McClell on Twitter summed up my feelings pretty well, saying, quote, I don't know whether to enter or call the police, end quote. Most people online aren't having it, saying they'd eat a lot of horrifying artificial flavor pairings, but this is just one step too far. Though some, like Twitter user Jonathan Flores, are owning their terrible taste by tweeting, quote, I'm single and ready to eat this alone on V-Day. Good for you, Jonathan. Respect. Listen, I'm just trying to imagine if Kraft thought that this would become like one of those specialty pastel-colored themed frappuccinos that all the influencers post selfies with, or if they knew that this was going straight for the shock value dark side of the internet. I mean, either way, their marketing clearly worked. We're all talking about it. And I've got to admit, while I do not want to eat it, I am really curious what it actually looks like when it's all mixed up. You know, They've only posted a clearly edited mock-up. I want to see the gritty, realistic photos that people post when they try mixing it up themselves. One thing to look forward to on Valentine's Day, I suppose. One last thing before I go. That knitting piece got me thinking back to an episode I did in November about how many holes a straw has. I went deep down the rabbit hole on that one, learning all kinds of things about topology, the study of spatial relationships, more or less. And it completely changed my stance on the question of how many holes a straw has. Or if we want to be more on theme for the day, substitute straw with hot pink mac and cheese noodle. Anyways, I wanted to re-up that episode for you in case you missed it, as well as all of the videos that I mentioned in that episode. If at least one of you listening becomes a Going Deep with David Reese convert, I will consider my job done. But I also wanted to just tease the mathematical argument a little by quoting from a more recent piece on the topological question of holes from Quanta Magazine. Quote, In everyday language, we use hole in a variety of non-equivalent ways. One is as a cavity, like a pit dug in the ground. Another is as an opening or aperture in an object, like a tunnel through a mountain, or the punches in three-ring binder paper. Yet another is as a completely enclosed space, such as an air pocket in Swiss cheese. A topologist would say that all but the first example are holes. But to understand why, and why mathematicians even care about holes in the first place, we have to travel through the history of topology, starting with how it differs from its close kin, geometry. In geometry, shapes like circles and polyhedra are rigid objects. The tools of the trade are lengths, angles, and areas. But in topology, shapes are flexible things, as if made from rubber. A topologist is free to stretch and twist a shape, even cutting and gluing are allowed, as long as the cut is precisely re-glued. 
A sphere and a cube are distinct geometric objects, but to a topologist, they're indistinguishable. If you want a mathematical justification that a t-shirt and a pair of pants are different, you should turn to a topologist, not a geometer. The explanation? They have different numbers of holes. End quote. That piece goes hard on the math, so if you want like a 201 of what I cover in that November episode, the link is waiting for you in the show notes. Anyways, that's it. I gotta go continue being glued to this GameStop nonsense. I hope you have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you tomorrow.